0: You're listening to the Elmira Radio Hour, a podcast that opens the door to culture, news, and stories behind the stories. We're your hosts, Sheila Lal and Nina Bhattacharya. And after a brief hiatus, we're back. This week, Sheila's talking to lawyer, writer, and organizer Aditi Janeja on a variety of topics, ranging from her work on policing in South Africa to the Resistance Manual to be named on Forbes latest 30 under 30 and the linguistics around disability self care and privacy this is a really mind blowing interview so let's jump in <laughs> So I really am excited to speak to Aditi Janekja, who is this badass lawyer that uh, I I recognize from Twitter and maybe some of our listeners recognize her uh, from Twitter as well, specifically her thread on Kylie Jenner's Forbes success list, her self-care Sunday podcast, and her resistance manual. I am really interested in understanding how your presence in media adds more depth to this zeitgeist understanding of intersectionality. Um, so what do listeners need to know about you?
1: I guess listeners uh, should know that in addition to kind of all of the identifiers that you uh, listed out. I identify as a feminist, I identify as disabled, I identify as Indian American, Um, so, you know, I operate under kind of a bunch of different lenses, or I think through a bunch of different lenses and thinking through my work and the work that I do, and uh, right now I work in communications at an organization called Protect Democracy
0: what should so we asked like what do they need to know about you but what should they know about you
1: I guess they should know that I was um like a fuck up for like most of my life like I was like a very like just can I curse I didn't ask if I could curse (laughs) Uh, yeah no yeah yeah yeah, absolutely uh, so like I was like a very uh mediocre student I really lacked discipline Um, I was forever not living up to my potential so you know it was really about me kind of finding my passion finding areas of things that I was interested in and that kind of focused me and I think it's just important and I think that's the thing that listeners should know because like none of us kind of get where we are by magic it always like looks like an overnight success and that's just never true for anyone there's always a lot of hard work and sweat and tears that go into anyone who looks like an overnight success.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I personally was kind of in the same boat, like had a uh, not great academic record, didn't seem to like have a tra- trajectory that made sense. And I'm now really interested in understanding how did you find that passion? Like what were the, the impetus that helped you realize that you wanted to be in the legal space?
1: So I always kind of had directionally that interest. I was always interested in politics. I was interested in social change. You know, when I was young in middle school, I got to do some summer camps around like politics and Model UN. So like I always had that kind of interest. And when I was in high school, I did mock trials. So that further cultivated it. And then in college, um, I took a lot of government classes in addition to my econ major. So I, I was always kind of growing that interest. I did internships in the space but I wasn't really until I was applying for law school and studying for the LSAT that I really got hyper-focused on what it was that I wanted to do and I wasn't really excelling um, really like kind of making a stamp until I was in law school and even in law school I, I went to NYU Law so I was you know a good enough, I, I did well enough on the LSAT that I got in there. I actually got in a week before classes started. Um, So that's kind of an interesting story. I gotten off the wait list. I was waitlisted at nine schools. Um, Damn. Because I was such a splitter. So, like, my LSAT score was really high and my GPA was very mediocre. So I was on um, just so yeah. many wait lists. I think for me, it was kind of just finding my place in the world. You know, it was like, I, I it wasn't that I like didn't have interests. I think we all have interests, but I think kind of moving from an interest to a passion is like, what is the thing that like you would do anyway? What is the thing you would do for free? What is the thing Mm -hmm. that like, if you have six months to live, you'd be like, yes, I'm so happy I'm doing this. And finding that and not just finding it, but like actually having the opportunity to do it took time, you know, uh, you have to have a certain level of education, you have to have certain access to certain spaces. Um, And so when I was in college, I was often really frustrated because I was like, I'm just, like, here for no reason. Like, it's, it's just, like, I'm, like, studying things. And, like, what is even the point of this A? Like, who cares? And yeah. for me, I wanted to be making impact. And it just took time for me to get to a place where I could actually do that and where I kind of had enough information and knowledge to do that well. And that's not to say that people – with less education or less information, can't make an impact. It's just for what I wanted to do and what I was interested in. I had to kind of equip myself to do it.
0: So I saw on your website that you had done work with South African politics and history. And did that interest come out of undergrad? Did it come out of law school? Like, where did you develop this want to do cross- cultural or cross-country uh, analysis or education, especially for most people who tend to go back to their country of origin for that.
1: In the 90s, there was this Disney Channel movie called The Color of Friendship.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that, that was
1: a good movie. Yes, that was about South Africa. So that was the first time, because um, I am 27. So by the time I was kind of politically aware, apartheid was over and South Africa was not in the news the way it was in the 80s and 90s and early 90s. And, but I saw this movie and I was like, that's crazy, what? Uh, and it was really kind of insane to understand that there was like segregation, which, you know, by the time I was growing up was 30 years old and kind of when you're 10, it seems, that that's a long time. And it seems like a relic of a past generation yeah. And to understand that that was a thing that was presently happening in parts of the world. And so like, that was where I was first like interested and like had heard about South Africa at all as a country and then my dad went to South Africa for a business assignment in 1999 and I remember he had an Indian passport and I remember um, him saying that like if he had gone just if if he had been meant to go a couple years before he wouldn't have been able to go with his Indian passport because every country had stopped travel to South Africa besides like the United States and a couple of others and just for him like the experience I like I remember it vaguely because I was so young but just for him the experience of being like it was crazy like I could like walk through the streets but like four years ago I wouldn't have been able to do that as a brown person right and just like so that kind of had some inkling of information in my brain and then in college I with that kind of constant like just curiosity that I had had I took a class on South African politics and the professor who I had was a South Africa scholar she was very passionate about the country and she's said you know South Africa is really a microcosm of the world and the world's problems like everything you would observe and try to understand about foreign policy and international relations you can understand by studying South Africa and as I was increasingly interested in social justice and activism I read the story of um Gloria Steinem, Stories Gandhi, and both of these people said that they couldn't see the problems in their own country clearly until they went to another country. So Gloria Steinem Mm -hmm. said that, you know, she didn't really understand gender in the United States until she went to India. And Gandhi said, you know, he didn't understand caste and classism in India until he went to South Africa. And so I really understood that there was an importance to having a comparative perspective and kind of observing a phenomenon in a context that was not your own because it gave you a different perspective Mm. and I um, It is true that like I did not grow up in India, but I felt very connected to India for me It didn't feel I visited India every other year. I grew up with parents who were immigrants It did not feel to me that like doing a comparison with India would be useful to me because I felt like I was still pretty baked in that stuff like I still feel like I like I was born in India. Like I feel mm-hmm. like I see blood running through my veins. Like it didn't feel like it would be sufficiently different that I would be seeing it with fresh eyes. Yeah. And for me, South Africa was interesting because I was very interested in issues of race and institutionalized racism. That's what I was very focused on and wanting to study. And. South Africa seemed really interesting to me because in the United States, the problem of police violence, so I started law school in 2014. That was the year Michael Brown Mm -hmm. uh, was killed in Ferguson. And so it was really, I was in law school, just kind of right at the rise of Black Lives Matter Mm. movement and through that. And so a lot of my legal education and focus on criminal justice reform was informed through that kind of cultural moment as well as my legal education was all happening at the same time. And I felt like, you know, we talk about institutionalized racism and police violence purely through a racial justice lens and I was very interested in the intersectionality of gender and other identities and uh, I was taking a class on policing and democratic policing and a social psychologist by the name of Phil Goff came and spoke to our class and he said that his research actually demonstrated that the policing violence issue in the United States was uh, not about race but mm. about gender mm. and it was about toxic masculinity and masculinity threat and that the reason that black men were getting killed at higher rates than uh, people of other races is because black men are perceived yeah. to be hyper-masculine oh. so it's obviously connected like it, it is about race obviously because that perception is a false perception due to racism yep. but the the kind of the psychological origins of it are not rooted in racial bias, but rooted in masculine threat. Mm. And I was super like fascinated by this and was trying to figure out like, how would you test for that? Right? Like, how would you figure that out? You can't run a control study. You can't run a randomized control trial and be like, hold everything constant, but gender. Like, it's like, like, how would you do that? And so what I thought was, well, what if you could find a place where the country's majority black, And the police force is majority black and they still have a lot of police violence. What the fuck is going on? And that place was South Africa. Mm, And so I wanted to go to South Africa because I thought it was an opportunity to learn about police violence, holding race constant, where everyone is, is black. And so of course it is possible to still have anti-blackness and internalized racism in a country that has, you know, a colonial history and has had a history of, racial separation. But I wanted to understand, like, what is, like, I was, because I was very worried that in the United States, what if, like, people talk about implicit bias training in relation to police violence, or we need more black cops on the beat. And I was like, but what if that doesn't fix it? Then we're just gonna stop trying. And when I learned about that, it made me very nervous because if our solutions are meant to address a problem of racial bias, but that's not the problem, we're not gonna fix the problem. And so I went to South Africa to understand how are their structures different? How are their systems different? How, um, and also what about a system? What about a culture kind of allows the passage of bias through that institution? And like, how is that? Because your police force is not majority black, your citizens are majority black, but your institution is still racist. Yeah. You know, 20 years after apartheid. And so that was why South Africa was interesting to me because the proximity to their to racial separation was closer than it is in the United States. We're about 50 years out, they're 20 years out, so they're closer. So it's more obvious uh, and it's clearer mm. to see.
0: That's okay. So I'm like still processing what you're saying because uh, like, so when you went to South Africa, how did you set up a, like a course of study and trying to like efficiently aggregate data to start making, um, to start, I guess, like, going into more deep dive research projects?
1: So I did all of my research before I went to South Africa. I did it the semester before I went. I went for two weeks over winter break, my third year of law school in Mm. uh, 2016 and in the beginning of 2017. So we were actually finalizing the website for resistance manual while I was in South Africa. Uh, And so I was there um, really to do, Interviews with South Africans because I had done a lot of research, so I felt like I had a decent handle on South African history and a perspective of South African um, structures in terms of governmental structures and institutions and how their legal system was set up. But what I didn't understand was like the experiences of mm-hmm. people on the ground. And I noticed that most of South African scholarship scholarship on policing written by South Africans were written by white South Africans. So I really wanted to talk to mm-hmm. black South Africans. I also wanted to talk to women. I felt like I wasn't getting a full perspective and particularly with my interest in gender. So I wanted to go and talk to people and ask questions. And so I actually most of my interviews were set up just through like cold emailing people. So I was reading studies and being like, this professor looks interesting. He's done a lot in this work. Who has cited him? I was, I started reading um, South African newspapers a couple months before I went. And so anytime I would see someone who's kind of in the vein of interest, I would reach out to them. I'd randomly find their email address and reach out to them. And I was really surprised. I did something like 15 interviews while I was there and like almost all of them were just through cold emails. Hey, I'm an American student coming to South Africa would love to chat with you. And almost everyone said, yes, I only had a handful of interviews actually scheduled and everyone else was like, call me when you get here. And I was like, very nervous about that. But I called everyone when I got there and most people said yes, yeah. which was great. And I got to talk to amazing people, high level people. I got to talk to someone who's on the truth and reconciliation commission in South Africa. I got to talk to, um, up the, like someone who's really high up in their national prosecuting oh. authority and their prosecu- and like their equivalent of DOJ. I got to talk to the person who heads their investigations into police officers. And then of course I talked to activists on the ground, people researching mm-hmm. this. So a really wide, someone on the South African Human Rights Commission, just a really broad array of people. Um, so I was really trying to get every perspective and making sure that I was really understanding the problem from like all parts of the elephant and also while I was there I also did a lot of understanding South African history because I went and I visited yeah. a lot of historical sites and so being in their museums being at the locations you can it's not just about the physicality but it's like just so much history is like stored in a museum space Where you, so I was walking through museums taking notes and then I was scheduling interviews and so my days were like 9 to 5 and then I'd go home and I'd like research and study and yep. prep and write out questions for the interview the next day. And it was this very iterative process because as I was learning and going, the questions that I would have for the next person or the information I was trying to get from them would change because I would feel like, all right, I have an understanding of this, but yep. I don't have an understanding yep. of this. And one of the kind of foundational things that I was really struggling to understand was at one point was it's just a lack of feeling of agency amongst South Africans and so I asked uh I found a political economist uh who kind of had written something around this Spain and I asked to talk to him so I could get a really Mm 30,000 foot view of it and we just talked about like what does it mean to be a young democracy what does it mean to have a freedom struggle that was rooted in Mm. communism and accidentally got democracy right like and I felt very confused by it and I was talking to my dad and I did not have a good understanding of what it means to grow up in a country that was not historically democratic and was not planning on being a democracy because India is a democracy. My parents, you know, my grandparents were alive during partition, but my parents grew up in democracy. So for, for, you know, all of my kind of cultural awareness, that was a given. So it was a really different perspective to try to understand what does it mean for a people to be newly free and to understand their own Mm -hmm. agency.
0: That's really, sorry, I'm like really taking this in. You're one of the few people I know with an active interest in South African politics, and so it's not this is not information I hear on a regular basis and so it takes a little bit of time. So you were in South Africa after the election and writing the resistance manual and doing this work. What's prompted you to work on the manual and also what have you been able to glean from your work in South Africa to push people to think cr- more critically about the US situation?
1: Yeah. So I actually was a co-founder of the Resistance Manual, and I was working with uh, people at an organization called Campaign Zero, which focuses on ending police violence. And we were working on building out a larger platform that had to do with not just with police violence, but with criminal justice reform broadly with the notion that Hillary Clinton would be president and had promised criminal justice reform, but had not been clear about Mm -hmm. what that meant. And so I wanted to put together an agenda to kind of hold her feet to the fire with, and there are a lot of great organizations that do this work, but not one that kind of end to end. And so I wanted to take like the best ideas that were out there and kind of put them together on a slate of asks and demands from her um, because the leaders of Campaign Zero had been in touch with her campaign and had met with her. And so I felt like they had an access point to actually hold her accountable in that way. And then after the election, um, you know, like everyone else, it was very yeah. like, what the fuck? What do I do? I don't know what to ha- what's happening. And people were, you know, just starting to understand. He says he's going to undo the ACA. How would that even happen? They would happen through this budget reconciliation process. And I'm like, what the hell is a budget reconciliation process? And I was just... Reading a lot to understand the impact of proposed policy changes on people's lives, stuff that had been dismissed, but was now seeming like it could be possible. And then also trying to understand the processes through which mm-hmm. it could be accomplished, to understand how possible is it really, and then where are the opportunities for activism to, to kind of intervene and try to create what are the pressure points. And so I started like keeping track of that just like in a word doc in a table. And I shared that with someone at the resistance manual, uh, his name's Samson Yangwei. And I was like, hey, I just like threw this together. I don't know, what do you think? Blah, blah. blah. He was like, this is great, we should make it public. And so they started working with some tech, and he he was like, he suggested adding a couple columns of you know information to include, because I was very focused as you know, a law student on policy and process, and he was like, All right, but we need to identify like where people can take action. Um and I was like, Oh yeah. And I mean it was a natur it wasn't like a heavy burden, it was just like a natural flow from that, but it wasn't something I'd thought about. And he started working with tech folks to kind of actually create the actual website and it was it launched as a mm. so it could be crowdsourced and people could easily add to it. And we were, you know, thinking through some kind of problems of like, well, how do you yeah. make sure information is verified? And I said, Well, we can have an approval process and require citations. And when we launched, we had about three hundred volunteers to, volunteer to help and we I had drafted, uh, I like drafted kind of some of the basic outlines of like the 15 federal policy pages areas, but then we wanted to have 50 state pages. And so with our 300 volunteers, we, I kind of created a template for each section of a state page, like on policing in a state or healthcare in a state. And what uh, they did was they kind of, and I would like be like, this is the source material this is kind of the template and they would kind of pull that information for each state because what we wanted it to be was that for it to be more localized. So you could understand like if the ACA gets pulled from your, if the ACA is repealed, like what does that mean for, you know, Kansas? What does that mean for Alabama? Because it was, and is still the case that places that are most heavily dependent on federal government programs are red States and are places that voted for Donald Trump. And, so, you know same thing if, if immigration gets shut down to the United States the places that are most impacted yeah. are places like that and wanting to kind of help people contextualize what it would mean for them so I was focused on that and I wanted to do that because I felt like people were voting against their own interests in this election and that was you know as I came to realize over time a bit of a naive way of thinking about it because yeah. that's just always true and people vote about based on narratives and identity far more than they vote based on like you know some kind of rational calculation. Uh, But it was kind of what I felt like I had to offer and contribute to the world in a time of a lot of tumultuousness when people are trying to figure out what is this going to mean for me. And, And my experience in South Africa informed me by really giving me a gendered lens and perspective on this presidency because the woman I spoke with, who's a spokesperson at the South African Human Rights Commission, Um, Jacob Zuma, who was the president at the time in South Africa, is the only other elected leader who was elected to office after it being kind of widely understood and acknowledged that they were a rapist Um, so people would say Bill Clinton also fell into that category but Bill Clinton, there were accusations and it was very kind of, people were very unsure about whether it was true it wasn't kind of at that scale in terms of public knowledge about those accusations from Juanita Broderick Um, and for sure, these are not the only two people who are actually yeah. rapists who have been elected into high office, but uh, the two that were like, it was kind of widely yeah. known that they had committed acts of sexual assault. Uh, for Donald Trump, it was the Access Axis Hollywood tape where he talked about groping a woman's genitals. And for Jacob Zuma, he was actually a convicted rapist before being elected into high office. And she said to me, I asked, I was asking her about gender and a lot, you know, from a lot of different perspectives in government, But, you know, she said to me, like, you just have no idea what it means to have a rapist as your president because they think they can do whatever they want. They think they can have whatever Mm. they want. And so, like, that understanding of Donald Trump, not just through a lens of authoritarianism or illiberal values, but also through the lens of patriarchy, has been really useful for me in kind of strategizing and thinking about ways to intervene in this presidency and understanding his mental state. And I think also, um, you know, me asking her about women and women's kind of proximity to power and women's desire to climb the patriarchy because, um, as I'm sure many people know, the United States, 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump, which didn't make a ton of sense to me. So I was asking her a lot about women and their relationship to power in South Africa and, you know, South Africa actually... uh, major parties including the ANC has a requirement that half of its representatives have to be women. So I said like you have equal representation in your politics why are your women not why is their reality not reflected of that and she was explaining kind of how women in politics get punished for advocating for women and how women try to climb the ladder of patriarchy and how a lot of the corruption in South Africa is based on filial or you know patriarchal relationships and so Trying, you know, understanding that women try to climb this ladder of patriarchy, which was a lens I understood because I understood it through the lens of race. That in the United States, we see people, like people who are Indian American, yep. try to climb the lens of race, right? These are a lot of anti-blackness in the yeah, South yeah, Asian yeah. community. Yeah. And so, like, it wasn't a foreign concept. It was just one that I hadn't thought about through a gendered lens. And so, when I think about, you know, our politics in the U.S. and I think about, you know, more and more women are running for office, and what does that mean? I think I a little bit more, I don't think, I don't know if critical is the right word, but I think I'm a little bit less kind of bought into this idea that women will save us because it's about, are women going to be willing to exercise power that they accrue, or are they going to continue to try to climb patriarchy?
0: Yeah, that's actually been something uh, that I keep reflecting on with the quote-unquote blue wave and the Mm -hmm. pink wave on top of that. It's who are they running for, who are they representing, and how will they maintain that power? And I'm personally kind of underwhelmed by the quote unquote blue wave because it's our equivalent of the tea party wave of people who are reacting and running but may not have the policy know-how to or the political know-how to get things done in a way that keeps them in power because we have such a litmus test and we should have litmus tests for certain things but i guess the purity test is really what i have an issue with because i'm from missouri currently live here, but I'm uh, going to school in Michigan and like being in very purple states, you can be super liberal. That's fine. But you have to recognize that you have to meet your constituency where they're at or not have an iota of access to power. Mm-hmm. The way that you're framing the South African understanding of the gendered experience in the U.S. is for me really spot on.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I don't know if it's fair to say that it's a South African experience, but it was certainly this one person's perspective. And, you know, I found it a a valuable perspective. I'm sure that there are a lot of people in South Africa who would disagree with her.
0: Mm, Yeah. I mean, like, just like so many people here would disagree about the access to political or economic power that women have, which we still don't, like, across the board. identify as disabled and so I find that in non-disabled quote-unquote spaces this conversation doesn't come up and I was wondering if you felt comfortable exploring that and having a conversation about what disability means to you. Sure. What disability do you identify with or like what is the right verbiage to use when asking someone about disability?
1: Well I think it's about the verbiage that they choose to use because some people uh, prefer to talk about themselves as people with disabilities, some people Feel that that person first identity is really important and some people like uh, like i'm one of them like are comfortable being identified as disabled as opposed to kind of putting the person mm. uh, first and i think um and also you know i i identify as disabled and i have a chronic illness um, i have epilepsy mm. and not everyone with a chronic illness identifies as being disabled some people would kind of refer to themselves as spoon, spoonies or simply say they have a chronic illness um people you know, are kind of at, have different um, degrees of comfort with talking about disability and how they talk about disability. And I don't think anyone is right. I think it's just, you know, like with anything else, just being kind of aware of how someone else is referring to themselves and kind of adopting their language.
0: Okay. So as a, a disabled woman with a chronic condition, how do you start to have conversations about something that's quote unquote hidden in your community, community meeting, like the people you work with, the people you hang out with, the acquaintances that your parents may have whenever you're at their uh, at their home.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, my disability is is physically hidden. Like I have an invisible disability; you can't see it. But for me and the people who know me, it is not invisible because I've had it for almost all of my life. So if you have known me uh, through kind of childhood, like. family and friends for example like you know I have this thing because I've always had it and because while right now uh, my seizures are well controlled with medicine um, that was like not the case for especially my teen years so you know anytime I was staying with a grandparent or we're going to India and I was staying with family friends like we kind of had to like talk to them and let them know and precisely because I've had it since I was so young I got very comfortable not just explaining but like also kind of for safety reasons like not yeah. just being like hey this is me but like being like going up to a teacher um and being like you know this is like this thing that I have and like this is what it means and this is what you do if I have a seizure and like you know just for my own safety making sure that people who I was spending time with especially who what like when family was not around mm-hmm. like, that they knew what to do in the event that I had a seizure and then as I got to college and even law school, um, my seizures were still not controlled. So I got comfortable, like sending an email at the beginning of the semester, being like, "Hey, Professor So and So, just as an FYI, I'm in your class this semester, and I have this thing, and this is what it means." Like and yeah. again, like the whole thing, because um, you know, when you have a seizure, like you don't know you're gonna have a seizure, and you wait, well, you can't, um,
0: you can't like plan it or schedule it in for when it's convenient. No, you can't. That would
1: oh, be weird. a lot more. <laughs> that would feel a lot better. But that's like not how that works. And so, you know, a lot of times what people will say to you in whether it's work situations or academic situations is like, you know, if you need an extension or something or if something comes up, just like let me know. And I was not always in a position to like let someone know ahead of time. So right. And like and like totally fair that you would like to know ahead of time. But like that was not always my life and so i would kind of tell teachers like in advance that like if i don't show up for your class or even when i started working and i worked between college and law school Mm -hmm. like if i don't show up for work it's like not because i'm being flaky and you should actually be concerned (laughs) like you know like to like set a standard of like just expectation and clarity so i felt comfortable to answer your question talking about it for a long time because i had to talk about it for a long time and my sister kind of made this interesting observation recently which seems very obvious but is actually not was not obvious to me which is that she said that she's like much more private than I am and she thinks the reason she's more private is cuz she's been allowed to be private um whereas like I have not had that luxury for most of my life so like I grew up just not having privacy mm-hmm. in this in this kind of really fundamental way about stuff um and so she's just like you're just you know more open and willing to share and talk about your experiences and be public than I am because her and I were talking about writing. She was an English major and she writes and she writes beautifully and she like doesn't want to publish her writing. And I was like, what the hell? Like you have useful things to say. And she's like, I have (laughs) useful things to say, but like I'm private. I do it for me. And I was like this I was like not computing. And she was like, you just have never had that luxury of being allowed to be private. Mm -hmm. And you know, privacy is definitely a luxury and a privilege in a lot of different ways.
0: So do you think that your ability to advocate for yourself in a very personal way led to your interest in advocating for others?
1: No, because I don't think that I like view myself as advocating for others. I think most people are fully capable of advocating for themselves. And so I'm like not trying to speak for anyone but me. And I think that I have been in situations where I'm writing something and people will try to have me be the voice of a generation or be the voice of Indian people or something like that. And I really am resistant to that because no one group of people is monolithic in that way. But I do think that my, like having been forced to advocate for myself makes me feel more comfortable being assertive and advocating and like talking about stuff that other people might find um uncomfortable or feel like there's stigma around like I did not have the luxury of stigma
0: you came to at least my timeline through your excellent dismantling of Kylie Jenner on the Forbes list yeah. but what I found more interesting was how you got on that list
1: um so I got on the list from being up from working on the resistance manual I was on the law and policy uh list this year 2018 what was that process like like finding out thinking about what does this actually mean So it's an open process. Uh, They're actually taking applications right now for 2019. It's an online form that you go and fill out. And it was, uh, it's funny. It was like not an accident, as I said. Anything that seems like this accidental honor is never an accident. Like it's just nothing is, you know, everything's pretty intentional. And it was, I turned um, 27 in 2017 Mm -hmm. and I was like talking shit with my sister and I just said to her that like, you know, I'd love to be on the 30 under 30 list. Like that would just be cool. And she's like, well, like, you're running out of time. Like, you gotta get... <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. That's true. Fuck. And I was, like, was a law student. I wasn't doing anything very public. That was getting a lot of attention. So that seed was, like, obviously there as a joke. I knew that this list existed, right? Like, yeah. that was kind of the, the basis of it. And then our cousin got married to someone who was on the Forbes 30 list a few years ago. As I was working on criminal justice reform issues, I had learned about an individual who had created this bot called the Do Not Pay bot, which helps you adjudicate parking tickets. Oh, nice. And I thought it was a really interesting idea that you could using tech to kind of create access to justice, like most people can't afford to hire an attorney. People get hit with, you know, hard, hard fines and fees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's like a really kind of punitive and oppressive part of our criminal justice system because it obviously disproportionately impacts poor people. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, you know, him and I, I I had like emailed him because I had some ideas and was trying to understand how you can use tech to kind of create more equity in our system. And I was interested in using it in a bunch of different ways. I was actually specifically interested in using it around collateral consequences and helping people understand if I plead guilty to this, what is that going to mean for like all these other consequences that are going to exist in my life? And so he was also on the list. I kind of had known a couple people were on it. My co-founders on Resistance Manual, Sam Snyangwe and Netta Lee's, were were on it. After I founded the Resistance Manual and I was like working on that, um, I then saw somewhere that they were like, applications open for Forbes 30 Under 30, whatever. And so like I I first um, applied myself. I asked people I knew who were on it, like, how does this shit yeah. work? <laughs> And they were like, Oh, look, I'll nominate you. I think it matters more if an alumna nominates you, like just send me like the info. So I sent it to them. And um, then I found out one of my colleagues on the resistance, you know, one of the volunteers who was working with me and who's actually the producer of self care Sundays had nominated me as well. Okay. And I suspect my law school may have nominated me because they also asked me for information to nominate me. So I don't know that that happened, but I think it happened. Yeah. Um, so it was like all of that kind of process. And, Finding out was interesting. I was, like, I didn't know what was happening because I got this form kind of as we got closer. I don't, I can look up the exact date, but they, like, asked me, they were like, hey, you've been selected as a finalist. We want all of your information. And my understanding was that the list came out after the new year, but this year they released it early. Mm -hmm. Um, They released it and so, like, I was, you know, pretty surprised when I found out. And I saw, I was like, oh, shit, it's up. And then, I actually, it was leaked. Now I'm remembering it leaked that someone was like, it's coming out in a couple days. And so, like, mm. that day, I was checking. And then I was on it. And then I was like, cool. <laughs> now what do I do? Like, I was, like, living my life. And yeah. it was, like, this, like, kind of, it was, like, obviously an honor. And I was, like, very, you know, flattered and happy and all of that. But I was, like, so, like okay, like what is that, what happens now? Like I didn't like understand. And it was interesting because there was like a reaction. I was congratulated by a number of people, of course. And I appreciated that, although it was also weird because you win an honor, or you get put on a list like that because you've like done something and uh, a large portion of the people who congratulated me and were very impressed by this honor were not uh, interested in my work prior to winning it. Mm. So that actually kind of pissed me off a little bit that I was like, Oh, now you care about why I'm spending all this time doing this thing. Like, so that was, I found a bit frustrating particularly when I saw, people who I haven't spoken to in years, like claiming me on social media, being like my friend, I was like, Oh, we're friends. Really? I didn't know that. That's cool. Right. Uh, Then, of course, there was this very large backlash on Twitter about the fallacies of this list and the privilege associated with being on this list and the privilege needed to be on this list. And I kind of even at that time was like, Yeah, this is like, that's right. Like, totally. And like, I wanted to say something. But then I thought it would sound weird if I said something because it would sound like I was like, engaging in some sort of self-flagellation and it would just seem like disingenuous that I'd be like bitch shut up like you made the list like and I also knew that for a number of people like they're saying it out of some frustration Mm. of like not having opportunities like there was it wasn't just like oh fuck those people there was like some deep emotional like it's not fair that I haven't had those opportunities which is true and so I didn't think it would be particularly productive to be like yeah that's totally not fair like and they'd be like Great. That helps me not. Yeah. And so I didn't say anything, but it was a thing I'd been thinking about. And after I won, I spoke with another young woman I knew, another young Indian woman who had won. And I asked her basically like, so like, what does this mean? How do you like use this? Does this like change your life in any significant way? Like, what's the deal? And she said, you know, basically that it's basically, you know, a credibility marker that like people, it's a commonly understood credential. And so people understand this to mean that you've like done something worthwhile and that like some specific subset of people have deemed you to be intelligent and worthy of this award. And she thought, you know, it has helped me with some speaking gigs, probably helped me with job the same way a, content, a credential would like you know, going into a specific type of university or school yeah. or something. I was like, all right, cool. When this Kylie Jenner self-made cover came out, it wasn't like I like randomly thought of all of that stuff in that mm-hmm. moment. Like I had been thinking about it for quite some time. And I had also been thinking about this idea of scarcity for a very long time. The fear mongering and this idea of you know, racial anxiety or racism or threat or economic anxiety or racism, that it's really rooted in this notion that, like, we only have so much. The pie is only so big. And I, it's just not factually true. I was just kind of waiting for an opportunity to say
0: it. <laughs> well, you took it. And I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really I'm really grateful that you did. Um, it was nice to read that, like, train of thought in a way that was concise. And I could tell that you had thought through it. Like, it didn't come off as rambly at all. I want to wrap this up because you have really important things to do being an, a badass lawyer and advocate and just human all around. But before we sign off, I would love to know how do you take care of yourself?
1: do in a bunch of different ways. I think, you know, part of it is like it's just support relationships and friendships and like having people around me who are, um, who I know like care about me um, kind of outside of and beyond like success or failure and that is kind of grounding um i have been trying to exercise more i have been cooking more um so just trying to be physically healthier um i I host the Self-Care Sundays podcast. The reason I host it is not because I'm an expert in self-care. It's because, like, I'm trying to figure out how to better do self-care. And so season one, I, like, learned a lot of great habits. And then I was really struggling to kind of make a routine out of them. So season two was me talking to guests about how do you, like, actually do this for real. And so I've been trying to do more of that. And, you know, and then I think I really enjoy talking to people like the way I'm talking to you what is the use of having a platform if you're not using it to like share knowledge and information with other people. So, you know, anytime I get the chance to write a piece, like the piece I wrote on inbox about Kylie Jenner and Forbes and like, it does feel like self care. Cause it's like the ramblings in my head, find a home, you know, Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah, kind of in those different ways, whether it's mentoring, reading art, meditating, mm-hmm. exercising, eating kind of normal stuff, nothing earth shattering. So where
0: can people find you and what resources do you think our listeners should really keep an eye out for?
1: Um, so people can find me on my personal website, which is adityjuneja.me, dot .me, on uh, Twitter at aditijaneja 3 So that's A-D-I-T-I-J-U-N-E-J-A 3. Um, I have my podcast, which is Self-Care Sundays. So that's the Twitter handle, the Instagram. There's also, I also have a website, podcast.com, but the podcast is basically anywhere you can find podcasts.
0: Aditi, thank you so much for your time and your insights and really, really looking forward to seeing you more on the internet.
1: Thanks.
0: With that, thank y'all for listening. And we'll be back in a couple weeks. Yeah, totally. So you can find Sheila online at Queen of Law on Twitter, and you can find me at only Nina on Twitter as well. Always go to the website almiraradiohour.com and check us out on Facebook and Twitter. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, hit us up. We're always happy to integrate new information. Yes. Sounds good.